Well, this morning we're going to turn the page in our study in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. And this begins a little bit of a different emphasis as we have concluded what we have looked at over the last several weeks in the dialogue, the monologue that Jesus had with the religious leaders over the healing of the sick, crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And so as we turn into chapter 6, we're going to see this next miracle that John chooses to record for us. He only records eight out of the many that Jesus performed. And so this fourth one is the only one other than the resurrection that is mentioned in every other gospel account. Jesus' ministry is filled with evidence of his deity, and that is John's primary goal in the writing of this letter is to make it unmistakably clear that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, the Messiah that the, long, that the Jews had been so long awaiting for him to come. Now, if you remember from what we've looked at, the miraculous works that Jesus performed supported his claims that he actually was sent by the Father. In John 5.36, Jesus would say, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father, that the Father has sent me. John the Baptist followers came to him and saw verification and evidence of the claims that Jesus made about himself that they were true. We read in Luke chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. But the great controversy existed over the healing of the Sabbath, the healing of the blind, the crippled man on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders were incensed over this incredulous act of Jesus, this bravado, if you will, to have the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. And so even though they had seen his works and they had seen evidence of his claims being made, they were not willing to accept them, even though they couldn't deny what he had done. And what we will see in several weeks down the road in John chapter 10, there was a demand from the religious leaders, and it records for us in verses 24 and 25, the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now think about that. How long are you going to keep us in suspense about who you really are? He said it over and over and over. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Now Jesus, this time, had his full group of disciples. And he had been walking with them and teaching them. And they have seen and witnessed these things that he has done. But they didn't fully grasp the reality of what it was they themselves were experiencing. In John chapter 14, 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me otherwise. Believe because of the works themselves. Now, even though the religious leaders could not reject his miracles, they did reject his claim to be the Messiah. So this fourth miracle that we're going to look at today affects the largest group of people of any of the miracles that are recorded for us in the Bible. It's important because it leads, this chapter is important because it leads to the declaration that Jesus is going to make about himself, that he is the bread of life that has come in to satisfy the hungry souls of men. You'll also remember towards the end of this chapter 
the superficial followers who are going to hear the very difficult teaching for them, which was, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And if you remember at that point, the mass crowd began to trickle away because they couldn't understand nor could they accept the teaching that Jesus was giving to them. I really wanted to delay our communion this morning for several weeks down the road, but it was just too far. But this is really the introduction of Jesus as the bread of life, and I think it does fit very well with the observance of communion. So let's begin in our reading here in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 as we look at the feeding of the 5,000. After these things, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing what a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and the number in number around five thousand. Then Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and filling twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, Truly, this, excuse me, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. One of the interesting things about very common events that we have in our Bible is how profound the principles that can come out of them, even though they are so familiar to us. The story is so familiar to us. I doubt that you're going to really learn a lot that you haven't heard before, but this is the kind of message that we need to be reminded of on a regular basis because it steers us towards the centrality of our, of our life with Christ and his willingness to do innocent through us what can only be explained by him. In the same way, we need to be reminded regularly about the spiritual battle that our lives are lived under so that we can be aware of what's going on around us that we may not be able to see. So this is a very common story, a very common event, but there are some very important principles that we're going to get from this. We're going to look at this in four sections. First thing we're going to see is we're going to notice the crowd. First one says, after these things. Now what isn't clear in John's Gospel, because he isn't following a strict chronology, is exactly what these things are. It's very, very unlikely that he's referring just to what took place in chapter 5. That was a singular healing. It was a singular conversation with the Jews. But he's likely relaying the purpose for the writing of his gospel, and that is, again, to clearly proclaim the deity of Christ. John is not following this from day one to day last. He's just telling the story in such a way where it communicates who Jesus actually is. 
So verse 2 says, A large crowd follow him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So this long ministry period that is recorded in Matthew, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 14, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount all the way through the beheading of John the Baptist, similarly in Mark chapter 3 through Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 6 to Luke chapter 9. These are the things that have happened that has now persuaded Jesus to remove himself from where he is. Verse 3 says, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now in Mark chapter 6, there's a very common experience that takes place there. It's a recording of a teaching event that isn't mentioned here in the Gospel of John, but it gives a context as to why there was such a large crowd of people following him. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has actually had a teaching event, and that has garnered a large group of people, and as he has gone away, this large group of people is now following him. And so because it's getting late in the day, there is this internalized feeling of an obligation to take care of the people who are now coming to him. So before we get to that, the other Gospels provide the likely reasons that Jesus is withdrawing to the place that he is withdrawing. Number one, there is fatigue. There has been a very lengthy time of ministry, and although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. He got tired like we do. He got hungry like we do. He needed to rest like we do. But there was also fatigue amongst the disciples. These men who had left everything behind, who were walking with him and learning from him, needed a time of rest. They needed a time of concentrated focus. And so it's very likely that this is one of the reasons why Jesus withdrew from the place to get some rest, to get away from the demands of the people and the ministry that he found himself in because... He was drawing enormous crowds of people. Secondly, the likely reason that he is withdrawing is grief. John doesn't mention it. It isn't in the chronological, chronological account. But if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 14, it actually records the death of John the Baptist. And so if this teaching and withdrawing event, the feeding of the 5,000, is right on the heels of John the Baptist's death, it is quite possible that that is one of the motives why Jesus did withdraw from the people. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the city. So it's very possible that Jesus has withdrawn. There's been a teaching event and he is now trying to get away again. But the crowds will not relent. They continue to come after him. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now if you remember back in chapter 5, there's a generic mention of a feast. It's the only one in the Gospel of John that isn't specifically identified. And so if this was the Feast of Tabernacles, it means that there's about a six-month period from the healing of the man at Bethesda to this event of the feeding of the 5,000. If the, if the event mentioned the feast was mentioned in chapter 5 is the Passover, it is likely a year that has taken place. Most believe that it was probably not the Passover. There are, I think it's two or three that are mentioned that give us a very good timeline of Jesus' ministry. So it's after this period of ministry, this probable six-month time of healing and teaching, he has gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but he didn't find seclusion there. He didn't find the rest that he needed. A large crowd followed him because of the signs that he was performing on those 
who were sick. Now, this is important for us to recognize. The crowd is interested in Jesus for two reasons. One, they're interested in the miraculous, not the message. Now, we'll see this very specifically a couple of weeks down the road in verse 66 when it when Jesus tells these people that unless they eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, they can have no part of him, and they began to walk away. They didn't want the message of Jesus' life and ministry. They only wanted to be the benefactors of his ability to perform miracles. You know, we hear this a lot in our culture today. It's very important to address the physical needs of people, and we absolutely need to address those. But to address the physical needs of people and to completely neglect or ignore the spiritual needs of people goes right back into this kind of an event where people only want to have the physical met. They want somebody to bless them and be a miracle worker in their life, but they're not really interested in any part of the message. This is the problem with emphasizing the social gospel apart from the gospel message itself. Every miracle that Jesus performed had some spiritual motivation attached to it. He just didn't go out and perform miracles to dazzle the crowds and to get a large following. He did it because there was a purpose, and the purpose was to make it unmistakably clear that He is who He claims to be, the one and only Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. For you and I to meet the needs of people physically and not share with them the truth of the gospel message is a half-hearted interest in meeting their deepest need. Now, secondly, what the crowd was interested in was the physical and not the spiritual. They just wanted to be fed. They wanted to be healed. They wanted somebody who was going to take care of them and provide for them. Think about this. Back in this day and age where you were likely an agricultural worker, which was long and hot and difficult, or you were lucky to have your own market to sell your goods, here you have an opportunity to follow this guy around and he's just going to feed you forever. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? You had a place to sleep and didn't have to work and had something going to feed you? Hey, you have, we have something like that. You know what it's called? It's called the Welfare Society. This is what the people wanted. They were interested in having their physical needs met, not really addressing the spiritual bankruptcy that exists in every heart and every soul apart from the work of Jesus Christ. How is that like you and I today, post-salvation experience, that we focus so much on getting our physical needs met that we forget about the spiritual that Jesus wants to meet in our lives. We want relief from the difficulty. We don't want the byproduct of the journey. We want to change in our circumstances. We don't like that feeling of having to be absolutely and completely dependent upon the Lord. Even though theoretically, we would all say, yeah, I know that I am dependent upon the Lord for every breath that I breathe. But how often do we give thanks to God for the breath that we are able to breathe? You see, we have such a focus on the temporary on the worldly, and on having our physical needs met, getting relief from the unwanted and the undesired, that we forget that there's a spiritual process that takes place in the presence of these difficulties that you and I are going to face physically when we aren't seeing the miraculous like we would prefer to see. 
So this is what's going on with the crowd. And so despite the crowd, Jesus still wants to go up on the mountain and he wants to sit there and spend some time with the disciples and get a little bit of rest. But he still took the time to accomplish his objective with his chosen men, and that was to invest in them. Because it was a Passover, the the crowd that was following him was larger than normal because all of the migrants who were coming in because they are required to do so. Matthew says that he healed the sick, and Luke says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Mark says that he had compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus knew the superficial reasons for their following, but in his mercy he addressed their needs anyway. So we've looked very briefly at the crowd. Now let's take a look at the disciples. Verse 5, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And one of the interesting things about that is why did he turn to Philip? Peter, James, and John were the inner core of the disciples. They were the ones that are most prominent throughout the Gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus would have focused on Philip. We know that Philip accompanied the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. We know that he shared with him how he could be saved. We know that Philip is considered to be an evangelist. But why did he point to Philip? Perhaps it was Philip's responsibility to take care of the feeding of the disciples. And because of that responsibility, Jesus turned to him and kind of put the finger on Philip and said, how are we going to buy enough bread for all of these people that we might be able to feed them? Matthew chapter 14, where this is also recorded, gives a bit of a a different take on this. In verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send away the crowds, excuse me, send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, there's nobody else speaking up that's going to say, No, we can take care of this for ourselves. We know who you are. We've seen what you can do. Even though Philip is singled out, the whole group of disciples are going to go through the exact same experience that Philip did and what we're going to look at here in just a second. So verse 6, this Jesus was saying to test him and to test the disciples, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So here we are. Jesus has been out preaching and teaching and healing for at least six months in this concentrated period of study. He's already done other things prior to that. And they come to this insurmountable obstacle in their daily life and it never dawns on them at all that Jesus has the ability to do something about this. So Jesus, one, wants to test their faith. The testing of our faith is an incredibly important experience for you and I in our walk with Christ. We tend to have an overinflated view of just how much faith we possess. And if you're not careful, God's going to show you <laughs> just how little faith you actually have. Because God is going to test our Faith. Why don't you look at these verses in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and we could really get into a mini sermonette on this, which I'm not going to do. A great two verses here. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, Paul's real quick. 
You greatly rejoice in these trials. No, I really don't. I know that spiritually I'm supposed to do that. Even though for a little while, a little while, you're in distress. How do we feel when we're in distress? Oh God, how long will this go on? It feels like it's been years. It's only been a couple of days, but I just don't think I can take any more of this. Isn't that right? So we need to have our faith tested. Number verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable meaning your faith is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is going to test our faith so that you and I will have the privilege of proving our faith, which results in the praise and the glory and the honor of Christ. Our our faith is supposed to be a testament to the greatness of God. So God is going to test our faith. And this is exactly what he's going to do here. The testing of our faith is to show us how much faith we have because God already knows. God doesn't test us because he needs to figure it out because he isn't sure. That's not it at all. We tend to think we have more faith than we actually do. And so when our faith is tested through difficulty, through insurmountable obstacle, it pushes us to our knees to cry out to God and we go through this journey of being dependent upon the Lord to do in us and through us what only He can do. So the first thing that Jesus is going to do is He's going to test their faith. Secondly, He's going to strengthen their faith. God doesn't test to show you that you failed. He tests in order to strengthen your faith so the next time you may not fail. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now think about this. Their faith is weak. In their minds, there is this absolutely insurmountable problem that they have no hope and no way of resolving. 200 denarii is equal to eight months worth of wages. Philip is saying, Jesus, if we had eight months worth of income, we couldn't buy enough food to give everyone even a little bit. Now think about this. How could they walk into a village and say, yeah, we need eight months worth of bread? You got any of that? This problem is so significant that it's impossible for them to even contemplate how something like this could be resolved. John has told us about Jesus turning the water into wine. That doesn't dawn on them at all. Jesus has told us, or John has told us about the healing of the royal official son. That hasn't dawned on them at all. They've just seen in a few months earlier the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, the countless other lame and blind and even dead who were raised, and it never crosses their mind that Jesus can do something about this. So, Jesus not only wants to test their faith, but He wants to strengthen their faith. And we come to James who says one of the most familiar passages that you and I, we know this, don't we consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, ha, 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 knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Two sides of the same coin, the testing of our faith and the strengthening of our faith. God has a purpose 
and the difficulties and in the insurmountable circumstances that you and I are going to face in our lives and the feeding of the 5,000 is an obviously overwhelming obstacle that the disciples have no grasp how that could ever, ever be resolved. Trials will strengthen our faith so that we can go the full course of our walk with God. Now here's the key to that. If our trials are going to not only test us, but not only and also strengthen us, then we must stay the course. If we don't stay the course, we will circumvent the spiritual journey that God wants to take us on so that you and I can be strengthened in our faith. How often and how easy is it for us to quit? You know, in America, Christian couples quit on their marriages... 50% of the time. Most pastors don't make it more than three years in the pulpit because of the difficulties, and they say, i got to go somewhere else where the grass has got to be greener. We are, by nature, quitters when things get hard. Can you think about that in your own life where it's been very difficult, and you've said, I just want to give up. I just want to throw in the towel. I don't want to fight this battle. I don't want to deal with this any longer. I just want this to go away. But you see, these difficulties enable us to see a picture of God that we would not see otherwise. You and I don't get to choose the circumstances that God takes us through. But the circumstances that God takes us through are designed to test us and to strengthen us so that we will see the greatness of His love and His grace so that we will see His power being expressed through our lives and our ability to get to it. God is with us every step of the way. He'll never leave us, nor will He forever forsake us. Right? And so it is the strengthening of our faith that is so important. And this is what is being fleshed out of this miracle in the feeding of the 5,000. In the face of an impossible task, Jesus wants to test and strengthen the faith of the disciples just like He wants to do for you and I. I want you to think about this very, very quickly. We're a small congregation, Right? We're in the process of talking about some ministry plans and some ministry ideas. And I can guarantee you that the byproduct is going to feel or it's going to seem overwhelming to us. That's too big. That's too difficult. That's too costly. And every time we say that, we doubt the Lord. We discredit His power. We circumvent His plans. And we have to be very, very careful, not only in our lives individually, but in our life corporately, that we allow the testing and the strengthening of our faith to propel us towards the face of our Savior. So one of his disciples, in verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Think about that. It's a little boy's lunchbox. Probably a good meal for a little boy. Not anything for a group this large. In Mark chapter 6, it's recorded this way. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. But what are these for so many? They've seen this enormous crowd. The disciples have an absolute lack of faith in the face of this entirely overwhelming problem. And now we're going to notice the third thing here. We're going to notice the dinner. 
Their lack of faith has been clearly exposed by Jesus in this encounter. And now Jesus takes over and is going to show them exactly who he is. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And I think in Mark or Matthew, one of the others, I didn't go back and reference it, they have them sit down in groups of hundreds so they know how many are there. So have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So instructing them to sit down, John adds this little this little notation here that there's about 5,000 men. That does not include the women. It does not include the children. And so the estimates are that this crowd could have been anywhere from 15 to 25,000 people. So many people that Philip said it would take eight months worth of wages and not everybody would get much. Nobody would get enough to eat. So this is an absolutely monstrous crowd of people. And look at what Jesus does in verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, the five loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, the two fish, as much as they wanted. Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus breaks the bread and he passes it out. He divides the fish and he passes it out. And it goes on and on and on and on. And it says, as much as they wanted. There was no fanfare. The earth didn't shake. The sun didn't go dark. God didn't speak from heaven. There wasn't this miraculous display of power. Jesus simply breaks the bread and He breaks the fish and it just never runs out. It just continues to flow. And Jesus provides for this monstrous group of people as much as they wanted and they were filled. Think about how much food that would be. Estimates are that to feed that many people, you would would average around about a pound per person, which would be 15 to 25,000 pounds of food that Jesus just broke And made out of nothing. Just all day long. Breaking bread and breaking fish. And passing it out. Verse 12 says, When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which are left over by those who had eaten. So this little boy's lunchbox has fed fifteen to 25,000 people, and there's now 12 times more left over than what he started with. Think about that. You know, we have to be careful that we don't read this event and go, yeah, you know, that's pretty cool. That's God. Yeah. Two lessons we can learn by this. Number one, God is not limited by our resources. God is not limited by our resources. The disciples, with their lack of faith in the face of this insurmountable problem, this overwhelming obstacle, believed that there was nothing that could be done. Remember, just send them away. They can go into the villages and feed themselves. This is the same thing that can happen to you and I if we're not careful about how we view this God of the impossible. We frequently limit ourselves 
in our own lives, I could never do that. God would never do that through me. I can never overcome that. I will never have victory in this. We limit ourselves in the church. We're too small. We don't have enough people. There's not enough financial resource. There's not enough space. We limit what God wants to do based upon our perspective of the obstacles that we see in front of us. Have you ever said we could never do that? Have you ever thought, I don't think I could do that? When we say that, what we are saying is, God isn't able to do that either. God can't do through me anything that can't be explained by my life. God can't do anything through this church that can't be explained by you and I. Is that the position we want to take in our lives individually? Is that the position we want to take in our lives as a church body? God couldn't, God wouldn't. Why would God do such a thing? I'll tell you why. God wants to prove our faith in such a way that our faith gives testament to the glory and the honor that He is due. And it is a great joy to the Father to be able to wow us with what He will do in us and through us as we believe that He can do the impossible. We get so stuck in the familiar We get so stuck looking backwards at what used to be, we don't possess a vision to move us forward and to seeing a greater display of the wonder and the majesty and the power of God. God delights in doing the unexplainable. Do you believe that? God delights in doing the unexplainable. If He didn't, these words would never be included in the book of Ephesians. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Stop right there. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. It's His power operating in us. What God wants to do in us and through us is far more abundant than anything that we could think of and even ask for for this purpose. To Him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, we look at these things in the Bible and we go, yeah, that's Bible time. Yeah, that's when Jesus was there. Yeah, that's when God was pulling His people out. It's the same God. It's the same Spirit living within us. We have all the power that we'll ever need to do everything that God has called us to do through Him, in Him, by Him and for Him, not on our own. God delights in doing the unexplainable. And the fact of the matter is, is if what we can do can be explained just by us, i got bad news for you, God isn't in it. God isn't in it. If it's the byproduct of what you and I can do, we don't need God for that. What we need is to God, for God to do that which we can't do on our own. Just like our salvation, our church, our lives individually need God to do what can only be explained by Him. Second lesson that we can learn out of this, number two, God will multiply the little we have to offer. Now, that doesn't mean that you're only supposed to offer a little. Don't misread that. We're to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. We're to give Him everything that we are. 
But God will multiply the little that we have to offer. You know, it's amazing. In years of ministry, talking with people about things that the church needs in terms of the ministry, and watch people sit there and say, you know what? I could never do that. I just don't think I have the ability. I don't have the talent. I don't have the giftedness to do that. We should never say such a thing. We should believe in the impossible God who desires to do things innocent through us that we couldn't even think to ask Him to do. That demonstrates the strengthening of our faith. This little boy left that day with a lunchbox for himself and God blessed it to feed thousands and thousands of people and the little boy was just willing to offer it up. Do you believe that God loves to take the little we have to offer and bless it and multiply it and do something great with it? You see, if you don't, then you're missing an opportunity to connect with this God of your salvation in a very real, in a very personal way. For those that trust in the Lord and seek after the Lord and follow Him with all their might and fail and get up and get dusted off and continue to follow and fail and get up and get dusted off, these are the people who can testify to the greatness and the power of God. We need to to acknowledge that our lives need the power of God to be fleshed out in such a way that everybody could say what you're doing and what your church is doing clearly exceeds your abilities. Absolutely, praise God. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. I'm just a vessel. I'm just a tool that God has chosen to use. I have nothing in myself apart from Him. God is interested in multiplying what we have to offer. And He's more interested in multiplying what we have to offer spiritually than He is physically. God wants to grow us towards maturity in His kingdom. He wants to make sure that we're more committed to the kingdom. He wants us to be committed to Him in obedience. He wants us to be willing to provide useful service to Him and to the body and to those outside the life of the church. We can't do that on our own. We need God to work in us in such a way that everybody can say, look what God is doing in and through you and that church. When we're willing to give to Him all that we are, we'll be able to step back and watch over time what God has chosen to do with the little bit that we had to offer. What a great blessing that is. Fourth thing that we're going to look at here, notice the response of the crowd here. As we notice the response, they wanted to crown Him as King. Verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus' provision of food in this wilderness environment has likely reminded the people of Moses' prophecy all the way back during the time of the Exodus recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. As you remember, God miraculously provided manna for the people at the hand of Moses. Jesus had just healed their sick and He has been feeding them miraculously from the, the small basket of fish and bread. We read this 
And Deuteronomy chapter 8, I rearranged some things, so it's out of place. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 and 19. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whomever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so Moses prophesied about the coming of a prophet who would be like him. And so the Jews very likely saw what Jesus was doing and understood that perhaps this was the prophet that Moses was speaking about. They wanted him to become king. I got this real messed up. I apologize. So... For the people, he has everything that they were looking for in a Messiah. They want a Messiah that would meet their physical needs. They wanted food. They wanted healing from their infirmaries. infirmities. They wanted to be freed from the yoke of the Roman oppression that they were in. They wanted to establish the ultimate welfare state so that they could go back to the days just as they did in the wilderness wandering when God provided all that they needed. But Jesus was not about to be made king on their unselfish and unrepentant terms. And so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus doesn't come to us on our terms. He cannot be manipulated. We must come to him on his terms. He isn't a quick fix that takes care of our felt needs. We must come to him in a way that he calls us to. So as we go back and look in a summarization of how we come to Jesus, number one, Jesus calls us to mourn over our sin. If you go back and look in the beginning of Matthew, which was likely in chapter 5 where this account was being set up from, this event, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we mourn over our sin, God will comfort us through His, his cleansing, His forgiveness, His love, and His grace. Secondly, Jesus calls us to come to him in repenting from our sin. In Matthew 4:17, Jesus began to preach and say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Number 3, we are to acknowledge him as Lord. In John 6:68, 6, Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life." One of my favorite verses in the Bible. We'll look at this at the end of this account. And then fourthly, we are to obey him. John 14:15 If you love me you will keep my commandments. You know there's a lot of the world out there who wants to come to Jesus on their terms. They come with their hands out and their heart closed. They just want to be fed, they want to be healed, they want to be blessed, they want to be rich. There's no mourning, there's no repenting. There's no lordship. There's no obedient service. If you and I aren't careful, we can unintentionally mimic the superficial crowd by giving to him less of what he deserves. You know, we're always going to have our faith tested, and in every testing, God will strengthen us. And he doesn't do it just so we can get a gold spiritual star to put on our lapel. He does it so that our lives will bring Him glory. Are you willing to allow your life to bring glory and honor to the Lord? You won't get to experience that as a spectator sitting on a seat. You'll experience that as a committed follower who is devoted to Him and Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the grace and the mercy that You show us. We fail You so often.
But we thank you, Father, that you never give up on us. You never kick us aside. You never leave us to ourselves. But you lovingly and sometimes forcefully get us to where we need to be so that you are to us who you are really, and that is the King, our Savior and our Lord. Father, I pray that you would birth in each of us a vision of what we can do as we give ourselves to you, what you will choose to do in and through us individually and corporately so that our lives and the lives of this church can bring you glory. May it never be said that what happens here can be explained by us. We would rather have it be explained by you and you alone. You've been so faithful. We've seen your hand in so many ways. We continue to desire to see it in even greater ways in the days ahead. And so we pray to you, the God of the impossible, to have your way, to have your will in every heart and every life. We pray in Jesus' name.